You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. Thank you, David. Thank you, everyone who has participated in the service in the front, but all of us are participating together as we receive God's rich blessings to us, His grace that comes through His Word and through the communion of the saints and later at the table. I just want to say, um, I, I think it's so interesting the way the Lord meets our needs. He tells us not to exalt ourselves because He knows what We know that he knows that we should know that that will be bad for us. If we're constantly bragging on ourselves, that's why the Lord says, let another praise you, not your own lips. He also knows our need for affirmation. And so he constantly encourages us to encourage one another. And you look at the end of Philippians 2, which we saw earlier this year, where Paul bragged on Epaphroditus and Timothy And you know that it's not a bad thing to say good things about your brothers and sisters in Christ. I just want to say, last week, 1 Corinthians 9, 24 to 27, where Paul says, I beat my body black and blue. I don't know anyone who embodies the full commitment of heart, body, and soul more than John and Jen Bart. Thank you guys for everything you do. And you're bragging on the people that you serve, and they do serve you well. I know that. But we thank you so much for your ministry with young adults. There are a lot of you who are like that. So I'm not just pointing them out to the exclusion of everyone else. There are a lot of people here who give much. But thank you, John and Jen. We are blessed to be part of the body of Christ with you. And hopefully we all Sense that blessing with one another that we are encouraged to be in this body of saints known as Grace Community Church <laughs> that was begun 28 years ago, just about this time of year. What a great blessing the Lord has given to all of us. Well, if you are relatively new to Grace and you want to find out all the stuff that I'm bragging about, I probably shouldn't be bragging about our church, but if you want to find out more about it, two weeks we have Grace Connection, September 17 and 18, Saturday morning from 9 to 12, and then Sunday morning we will talk about the ministries that are available to us. So if you would, sign up online. We're working on uh, First Impressions Will Criswell and Allison and I met this week, and we've got a lot of stuff going on. Right now, there's nothing available at the next steps table, but go online if you want to sign up for Grace Connection or for Grace Link, and you'll find a place there that you can sign up. So don't raise your hand when I ask this question, but I wonder how many here would say that you have learned some of life's best lessons, and most important lessons, the hard way. (laughs) That would be most of us, right? If not all of us, we learn about life oftentimes the hard way. For some reason, 
We don't remember as well the kinds of lessons that we learn from other people's mistakes. You know, if I watch you make a mistake, I'm thinking, hmm, I'm not going to do what that person did. Somehow, they don't stick with us quite as much as the ones that we, we're never going to stick our hand on that stove again, right? Not intentionally, anyway. My brother-in-law used to say, experience is expensive and wise is the person who buys it secondhand. That's a great (laughs) proverb. Today's text, 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 13, is part of a long and rather complex argument that the Apostle Paul made to address the disunity in Corinth church. Disunity that had a ripple effect moving the attitudes and behaviors of the Corinthians in the wrong direction. You would think that that's kind of... It, it, it's it, it just a, a little bit of cognitive dissonance that that you, a lack of unity can cause that many problems about belief and behavior in a church. But it's true. It's true. And so that's one of the things in, in, in saying all those good things about John and Jen that I, I just want to say thank you, Lord, for the unity that you have given us. And it's up to us to pray And protect it. Pray that the Lord will continue it and protect it. But today, we're going to consider a stern warning that the Apostle Paul gave. Not to the young and immature believers in Corinth. But to the mature believers. Or to the strong Christians in the church who had become too clever by half. They had outsmarted themselves. If today is your first or second time at Grace then you should know that we are in the New Testament book of 1 Corinthians. And I I just want to say that, you know, when I got to chapter 8, I said, wow, this is a really tough text. Then I got to 9, and I said, well, I just thought chapter 8 was a tough text. And now I'm in 10, and it's just amazing. It keeps getting tougher. So it's a complex argument, and it's a long argument. And if you feel a little bit lost Hang in there because it'll make sense over time. Our text this morning, 1 Corinthians 10, 1 to 13, uh, contains Paul's arguments that strong Christians, or once again, mature Christians, should sacrifice their rights to help believers who are not as certain about right and wrong and whose consciences consciences often make them feel guilty, but who are also sensitive and easily led into sinful activities uh, that for them are just not right, which in turn leads them into sinful attitudes and actions. Now, again, this is complex. And, And it's interesting to me that the Apostle Paul expects these believers to have a nuanced understanding of creation, of the Christian life, and all that goes with it. So, it's complex. It's possible that it will be even more confusing over this week and next Sunday morning, but it's equally true That you may individually or we may all well come out of the clouds into the clearing and we see this incredible view that we never had any idea existed if 
we hang in there. <clears throat> so, even if you feel lost, what a way to start a sermon, right? You're not going to understand this. Just sit there and go, okay, well, okay, wait till next week. If you feel lost, hang in there and ask the Holy Spirit to open your heart and mind to the truth of God's word. Because you'll see as we read our text that if all we profess is true, if all that we profess by just being here on Sunday morning when we could be doing something else on Labor Day weekend, if all that we profess is true, then nothing is more important than for us to understand the truth of our text from 1 Corinthians 10. It is our custom to stand as the scripture is being read. So if you would please stand together. I will be reading from the English Standard Version. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers. In other words, you should be informed. And this in the King James says, I would that you would not be ignorant. And some people say that's the world's largest denomination, the ignorant brethren. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thank you and be seated. One of the things you should always notice as a chapter, a new chapter of the Bible begins is the first word. If it's a connecting word for, I do not want you to be unaware. Paul is continuing the argument that he has made in chapters 8 and 9. Not only... Does Paul go back to the Old Testament to make his case against the wealthy and educated believers who were riding roughshod over the consciences of the weak? But again, he expected his mostly Gentile audience to have 
the kind of understanding that would be able to follow his nuanced presentation in the events that occurred in Moses' time so that they would be sufficiently warned about the end of their sinful attitudes and behaviors. You're heading down a really dangerous path. And you need to understand where you're going. But again, he didn't just spell it all out for him. He said, you should already know some of these things. When I refer to these stories in the Old Testament, you need to understand what I'm trying to tell you about these New Testament days. So already we have our first application. Know the Old Testament well enough to see Jesus all the way through and to be able to bring the lessons from the 15th century B.C. into our enlightened and advanced 21st century, which we really are no different than they were. What is that, 3,500 years ago? In chapter 10, Paul will speak of both baptism and the Lord's table, implying that both are essential for the believer's well-being in his or her relationship with the Lord. Being far more than, than the mere mention of the two sacraments, consider all that Paul incorporated into verses 2 through 4. First, the pillar of cloud that led the children of Israel during the exodus from Egypt and that separated the people of God from their enemies. Well, it's just tempting to think of a, a sci-fi movie when thinking about the events of the Exodus. It would be cool, right, for a pillar of cloud to lead you and all your brothers and sisters out of Egypt. Not only that, but the cloud turns into fire at night. Well, remember, these were slaves. They had no idea where to go, and they had no idea how to get there. And the Lord's presence was a real blessing to them. Second, the Israelites' deliverance from slavery through the Red Sea. The most unusual path imaginable. Moses leads them out of Egypt, and then the Lord says, go back to the edge of the waters. And the Egyptians are all behind him, and the people, are you crazy? Look where you've led us, but no place could God's power and glory be recognized more than, they, than it was on the shores of the Red Sea. Third, baptism into Moses, who represented Yahweh's covenant of law, with his chosen people. So much going on here. First of all, God chose these people. He put his favor upon them. It wasn't easy. But nonetheless, he put his favor upon these people. And he baptized them into covenant with him. But it was the covenant. It was a covenant made and, and led by Moses. Who gave them God's law. The people went through the equivalent of baptismal waters, although the covenant into which they were baptized could never save anyone. The covenant of law, the covenant of works. If salvation is to be had, if salvation is to be ours, if we are to be redeemed, it will not be because of the good things that we do, which the next two points indicate. Fourth, Yahweh 
supplied the Israelites with food, signifying that life doesn't just happen. He is the giver and sustainer of life. And it's far more than just physical nourishment. Jesus said as much when he quoted Deuteronomy 8.3 at his temptation, telling Satan that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of Yahweh. Fifth, water was supplied from the rock. I'm going to have some from this bottle right now. Water was supplied from the rock, which pointed to the provision of Christ who followed the Israelites throughout their wanderings, signifying that Yahweh's greatest gift to his people is himself. Paul was making the point that the rock that was struck in the wilderness was Jesus and, the, and that the rock was a type of Christ. Moses' rod was a rod of judgment, so we're supposed to make the connection. Now, there was a, a, a tradition uh, a, a, amongst the, the Jewish people and amongst the rabbis that, that the rock that supplied the water when Moses first struck the rock, that rock literally followed Jesus, I mean, followed the people of Israel all the way through. And Paul is not saying that at all. He's not saying a, a rock literally went along with him. But he was saying Jesus was that rock. And his presence was with the people all the way into the promised land. So these are all blessings from the Lord. They point to the Lord's presence, his protection, his provision. Furthermore, the spiritual nature of the food and water that the Lord provided indicates that he meets the immaterial needs of his people at the deepest places of the soul. Needs that all of us long to have met and cannot be met in any sustainable way apart from Yahweh. The Lord himself provides a sense of blessing, a sense of purpose, and a sense of care and well-being. With all these blessings, surely the people followed the Lord with all their hearts, correct? You know the unfortunate answer. Verse 5. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. So having set this foundation, now Paul will begin to inform the Corinthians that not only are the blessings, <coughs> not only are blessings to be found in the Old Testament, but warnings are to be found there as well that, that are given to keep us from disaster. He drew from two wilderness stories to let the Corinthians know that they were playing with fire. And their attitudes that blinded them and tempted them to idolatry with all its godless behaviors, particularly in the realm of sexual misconduct. The first historical account to which Paul pointed was the infiltration of Moabite women into the camp who seduced the Israelite men to eat sacrificial meals offered to Baal and then indulge in lewd and immoral behavior with women. Some 23 to 24,000 people died through a plague and by the swords of the priest. 
We find this story in Numbers 25, 1 to 18. And I just want to ask, how in the world can you have a sentence like that and not have a period at the end, right? It's just, I don't know. Do you recall the incident from Numbers 25? We talked about this not too long ago. The, the, the nation of Israel was moving all through the territory. They were defeating kings and they were camped on the plains of Moab. And Balak, king of, king of Moab, sensibly hired a prophet. Balaam was your everyday rent-a-prophet. You know, he was, he was for hire. And, and, and so Balak called him and he said, Balaam, now I'm going to take you you're going to look over this people, and I want you to curse them. Because I know if you curse them, God will de- help us defeat them. And so Balaam goes out there, and four different times he says, How can I curse those whom the Lord has blessed? You're beautiful, O Israel. I think, and I always think about that with how we see ourselves as believers and how God sees us as believers through Jesus. But Balaam was had really upset Balak, and he knew that, and he also knew where his bread was buttered. And so he said, look, Balak, I can't curse them, but I've got an idea. I've got a way that I think we can bring them under God's wrath. Why don't we send our women into the camp and seduce the men? And, and the women can tell them, look, Baal is so much more fun than Yahweh. There's a lot of food, and I mean it's good food, and then there's going to be some frivolity, if you know what I mean. And the plan worked exceptionally well. Except that Yahweh doesn't leave us in that place. If we're his people, he will not stand for us to be there. Their participation in the meal cost them some 23 to 24,000 people. Discrepancy in the number uh, in 1 Corinthians 10 and numbers. And there are explanations, good explanations, as for why one says 23,000, other 24. But the, but the most likely explanation is that there is an estimate. And only in the last two to 300 years have we cared about precision in the way that we do to, today. But a lot of people... 20,000 plus died, mostly from the plague, but also some were killed by the Levitical priests who were commanded to stop this immoral activity that was taking place before everybody. So why did the Apostle Paul issue this specific warning? Well, we'll get to the full story next week in the latter part of 1 Corinthians 10. My goodness, I hope we're going to do the rest of 1 Corinthians 10 next week. It may take two weeks, and that'd be okay if it does. But know for now that the gradual warning Paul had been given about giving about eating meat offered to idols will find full expression as some of the church members in Corinth were eating not only the meat that was sold in the markets that had been butchered in the temples, the pagan temples, which was okay, and Paul's going to say that's okay. But you can't go to the temple and to the restaurant that's connected with the temple and get a discount meal there. It's not okay. 
So all of this is building toward that explanation or that warning about sinful behavior. Furthermore, now we, we already know that sexual sins were both practiced and justified within Corinth church. This was the first warning. The second also comes from the book of Numbers, chapter 21 to be precise, and you will likely know this story much better than the first one that Paul referenced. The grumblings of the people against God and against Moses, provoking Yahweh to send snakes among the people that killed many of the complainers. The reason you know this story is that Jesus told Nicodemus the real purpose of this incident. Paul informed the Corinthians that they should consider this as a warning from the Lord to his people. This is truth that we can receive and profit from the easy way if we're willing to do it. Not learn this the hard way. Experience is expensive and wise is the person who buys it secondhand. When Paul wrote to the church at Rome about the benefit of the Old Testament <clears throat> truth for New Testament believers, he said this in Romans 15, 4. It's not going to be on the screen, but just listen. Listen to the difference in tone. For whatever was written in former days, like in the Old Testament, was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. That sounds a lot different from Paul saying to the Corinthians, hey, you better listen to this story where the carcasses of the Israelites littered the desert floor so that you don't become like them. He knew what they needed. He understood what the purpose was for, for the Old Testament in different circumstances. It's a far different tone in, in Romans, but the Corinthians needed this stern rebuke. So much so that Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 10, 12, Do you think that you have full justification for your actions? Going to pagan temples and getting a cheap meal? Think again. Lest you fall like those in the wilderness, bitten by snakes and devastated by the plague. Wait a minute, aren't these New Testament days in which our sins are readily forgiven? They are. But arrogance will always lead us to live in ways that please and glorify ourselves rather than the Lord. And so this thought that we keep coming back to over and over in these chapters of 1 Corinthians, if we thought that Jesus forgiving our sins means that we get a get-out-of-jail-free card and we can live any way we want to, then we've misunderstood the gospel. These are the days and we are the people, verse 11, on whom the end of the ages has come. Ah, but verse 13, what a wonderful verse we all have temptations that knock us off course and promise delight and success, but only deliver bitterness and disappointment. And it's wonderful that God gives us the power to overcome 
any temptation. In context, Paul is likely speaking about the temptation to justify sin that some consider debatable, but should be clearly seen as an offense to God. So there are certain activities that says, oh yeah, I can do that. I'm, I'm free in Christ. And everybody else is kind of like, I, I don't see it. I, I, I think the scripture speaks pretty clearly about this. I don't see it. And Paul is saying, the Lord will help you overcome that temptation to just live any way that you want to live. Why are temptations allowed to torture us as they do? Don't you think sometimes, God, why? Why do I have such a love for this or such a love for that? Or why can't I, I keep my tongue from saying things that I know? Why are they allowed to torture us? Well, first, you're better off if temptations do torture you than to not even consider this a temptation. To consider this an okay activity. Aren't you glad that the Lord will not allow you to live any way that you want to? Also, God allows temptations in our lives to build our trust in Him. Or to increase our faith in what He has already done for us. And that leads us to the final thoughts about God's provision for those who receive it. Here are just a few ways that God provided for his people in those Old Testament stories given today. Written for our benefit and beginning with the rock was struck with the rod of judgment so that we might have eternal life. You ever wondered at the severity of God's judgment on Moses? He, he led the people out. He put up with so much the first time that he struck the rock God had commanded him to. But the second time, God said, speak to the rock and water will come out. And Moses said, come here, you rebellious people. Am I going to have to bring water out of this rock again? Wham! And he took that staff, that rod that signified judgment and hit that rock again. Christ is only crucified once, right? And if that rock was Christ, what are you doing? This was like a legal scene. The people complained and grumbled against Moses. You brought us out here in the wilderness to die. Now give an account for yourself because we're going to kill you. We're going to judge you. It's like a court scene. And Moses, under the command of the Lord, takes this rod of judgment. It's the rock and water flows. Couldn't Moses have just been confused the second time? When God said, speak to the rock, no. No, he couldn't. He knew very well what he was doing. By the way, I think another reason... Moses was not allowed to go into the promised land was that the law will never get you there. It was Joshua, my Savior, who led the people in to the promised land. The Nile had turned to blood. The gods of Egypt had been judged when Moses raised his staff in judgment. And so when Moses struck the rock... 
And now we hear that rock was Christ. We recognize that God was making far more than just provision to quench our physical thirst in the wilderness. He was making a way that the deepest needs of our lives and our hearts and our souls would be met in Christ. Next. The bronze snake that was lifted on high pointed to Jesus who bore our sins that we might live. The story of the bronze snake being lifted on high so that all who would look on the snake would be healed from the poisonous snake bites made no sense at all. It's the craziest thing I've ever... How many people do you suppose died by saying, I will die first before I look at a bronze snake and expect to be healed? And that's exactly what happened. It didn't make any sense until Jesus said to Nicodemus in John 3, 14 and 15. And so, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus was speaking, of course, of his crucifixion. The beautiful news about this provision from the Lord is that although you can never be good enough to win God's approval, Jesus took the judgment that you were destined to receive. And by looking to the cross and asking God to forgive your sins, and by believing that Jesus died for you, you will receive eternal life. This is extremely good news, as is the last point, although it might not seem to be good news at first. God's instructions for dealing with sin in the camp that preserves the purity of the church. When the people sinned on the plains of Moab, God's judgment started flying through the camp with the plague. The closest thing we have seen to a plague was the early days of COVID, right? And were you not taken aback by so many people dying so quickly? Up to 300 people a day, which, by the way, is the same number of deaths of fentanyl overdose in our land, 300 a day. But this plague spread rapidly through the camp. But it didn't stop until Phinehas, a priest of God, killed an Israelite man and a Moabite woman who were mocking God openly with their sin. When you think about this incident, In context for the church, you cannot help but think about 1 Corinthians 5, where Paul called for decisive church discipline on the member who participated in sexual sins that were of a nature that even the pagans condemned. Pagans said, what are you doing? You know what I think the response was? We're free in Christ. And the Lord said, and the apostle Paul said, no. That is not the message at all. How did they get to this place? Somehow the Corinthians 
had convinced themselves that because they were free in Jesus, they could live as they wanted. And Paul said, be careful. (coughs) The Lord says to you, you are my holy people and you represent me. I will not allow your carelessness to hurt your brothers and sisters in Christ or to create a false impression of me among the lost. Take heed lest you fall. So how is this good news? Why should this warning not terrify us? Well, this warning should indeed create a healthy fear of the Lord in our hearts. But the fear of the Lord keeps us from fear of everything else. Our gracious God has made provision for us. And as we approach this table this morning, let us receive this good news from Jesus as written in John 7, 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, as likely water was being poured out symbolically, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Amen. As we prepare our hearts for the table, I'll ask the worship team and the elders and deacons to come forward. And first, uh, and I'll give a few instructions while they are coming forward. First, I'll let you know that the bread in this meal is gluten-free. So if you have allergies, if you're unable to eat gluten, then uh, you would want to know that you can participate with no concerns at all. Second, we'll be serving from the front today. So there will be four sections, uh, four stations, one in front of each section of uh, the congregation or the, the sanctuary, and you'll come forward in the interior aisles. You'll go back up the middle or the outer aisles. Ushers will alert you when you should come. And once you receive the elements, please take them back to your seat, and we will partake together. If you're unable to come forward, there will be someone in the back who will uh, serve you. This meal is intended for believers. So if you've trusted Christ as your Savior, please join me and join all of us in this meal. If not, just consider this this could be the day that you believe in Jesus and all of the benefits of belonging to him will become yours. Make your confession of faith this very day by joining us in this meal. This morning, uh, the text that will set the table for us is from Luke 22, beginning with verse 14. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. 
And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it now among yourselves. Divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you, you is the new covenant in my blood. Just think about this. The Israelites were baptized into the covenant of works. They were baptized into Moses. But we are baptized into the name of the Father, the name of the Son, the name of the Spirit. But as often as not, more often than not, you'll see in the New Testament, baptized in or into the name of Jesus. We're baptized not into Moses trying to be good enough. We're baptized into Jesus who was good enough and died for us. And as we approach the table, you might be thinking, oh my boy, with this text today, I absolutely don't want to partake of this communion if, if I've got sin in my life. Uh, look, perhaps the best way to judge whether or not you should partake this morning is who do you resemble more? I thank thee, Father, that I am not like these sinners over here. I tithe, I do this, I do that. Or, oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. If that is your cry, oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner, then the Lord has prepared a place for you at this table. That's when we come forward. That's when we partake. And we say, Lord, not a thing can I bring to you that is worthwhile. But Jesus, I have been given everything by you. And Jesus. So Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 11, and when we look at 1 Corinthians 11 in detail, I hope it will help you move beyond just the fear of partaking at the Lord's table that so many have introduced into this time. There, was very, there were very specific reasons that God judged the people. But he says if we would examine ourselves. We would judge ourselves. We would not be judged. So let's go to the Lord for a time of confession. And I will lead us in a prayer of confession. You can pray in your own way. Or you can say amen to these words. To prepare your heart the table would you pray with me almighty God we acknowledge and confess that we have sinned against you in thought word and deed we have not loved you with all of our heart soul mind and strength we have not loved our neighbor as ourselves deepen within us our sorrow for the wrong we have done and the good we have left undone. Lord, you are full of compassion and gracious, slow to anger and plenteous in mercy. There is always forgiveness with you. Restore to us the joy of your salvation. 
Bind up that which is broken. Give light to our minds, strength to our wills, and rest to our souls. Speak to each of us and let your word abide with us until it has wrought in us your holy will. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Community Church, located in North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this audio content to share with others. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Grace Community Church, go to ccnc.org.